Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to We Have Ways USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and of course, John McManus. Um, how are you, John? Doing great. How are you doing, Al? Uh, good, yes. Um, you, you've been, you've had some proper winter. We, we, it's just cold here. You've had some proper winter in the States, haven't oh, you? Oh, yeah. We had like six, seven, eight inches of snow. And oh. But, you know, the good thing is, fortunately, a lot of it melted within a day or two. Oh, right. It's, it's still miserable, though. Miserable. Right, okay. It's no, like the winter of 43, 44, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Especially in Italy. Us, right? <laughs> it's, like, it's like the winter in Stalingrad. Uh, well, oh, yeah. Yes. So, um, uh, Talking of which. Speaking of which. Now, um, John, th- this last week, James and I have done a series of uh, podcasts to try, to try to somehow sort of lasso and bring, bring, into, bring into the paddock, the We Have Ways paddock, the Battle of Stalingrad, which, of course... Um, uh, is a vast subject, and we aim to do three, and it took us four to get through it. I'm surprised you could do podcasts. it in four. Yeah, well, exactly. But one thing that came up, um, uh, uh, as Jim was Jim was taking us through to through the events at a, at a canter, is Chukov arrives um, at a, at a staff conference, and he does so in a lend lease jeep in September on the 11th of September, 1942. Now. That says, I mean, this is a thing that I keep being grabbed by is America, you know, goes to war in December of 1941. And by September of 1942, I mean, first of all, they, I mean, aside from that, they stage an invasion of North Africa in November of 1942 anyway. Right. So how the hell has that happened? But the fact that Russians, Russian generals are driving around in Jeeps, not it, only nine months after the war has begun. Um, indicates the sheer scale and muscle of Lend-Lease and how Lend-Lease comes, comes to everyone's rescue um, during the Second World War. So we thought, really, Lend-Lease and the Soviet Union would be a thing to, a thing to toss into our, into our Stalingrad stew this week. So who better to speak to uh, than yourself? The, the, I mean, the Soviet Union take uh, sort of, Ten million dollars is it? Ten eleven million dollars worth of of uh, lend lease? Is that right? Oh, more than that. More than oh, that. way, way more. more. Ten million. That's just. Well, sorry, 
So, oh, well, it's like well, no, uh, well, no. I a billion, that, I should think. Well, it's no, eleven point well, three billion. Well, I've, well, okay. So the, uh, I've, my decimal point is in the wrong place because I've hauled up. I've hauled up. Uh, Wikipedia has a has a values of oh. materials by the US. Well, no. <laughs> so I'm looking at the chart, and my decimal points out because it's saying millions of dollars, and it's 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 uh, a, it's ten thousand million dollars is what what, what it's what a we crazy amount of money. Eleven thousand. It's about 180 billion in today's dollars. Yeah, so it's it's a big chunk, and it's a it, giant know, so that, chunk of money. Chuikov, you know that, that vehicle. That's one of 400,000 vehicles the U.S. sent to the Soviet Union alone through lend-lease. I mean, when you when you think what that looks like, it's just it's just constant uh, problem of production to shipping. Uh, yeah. How you're going to get it there? Yeah, you know. And so John, we know we. Yeah, so way one, Arctic, Archangel, all that. Yep. Way, way two, two Iran. Iran. Yeah. And uh and way, way three, three China? Vladivostok, if you can possibly do that through the North Pacific. And that that's a side of the war that that I think really isn't all that well known. No, not at all. So this is going from, from Alaska, is it? It yeah, yeah, or the West Coast more commonly. Up yeah up farther north to the North Pacific and then on west. The problem, of course, is interdiction by the Japanese, but they have to be careful because they're not at war with the Soviet Union, too. Yeah. Uh, but the, really, the shipping is the big problem. But yeah, 400,000 of those vehicles, it's Jeeps and trucks, mostly. But that, I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a, it's a staggering amount, isn't it? I and mean, there are it, Shermans as well, aren't there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I could be wrong, but I, I think you're talking about Something in over about eleven or twelve thousand tanks that are that are going to be sent to the Soviet Union. So the U.S. Wow. produces, I think, I think eighty six thousand tanks in the course of the war. Yeah, so that tells you what about one out of every eight tanks oh, eight, that we eight. make is going to the Soviets. Yeah, yeah, and just to put that in perspective, only ever I think six thousand Panthers made and eight eight and a half thousand Panzer fours. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so certainly a lot of volume there, right? That's basically the concept, isn't it? You know that uh, the Soviets, of course, are going to do the bleeding. Uh, we're going to do the supplying, at least, to help them bleed, uh, yeah. to help them stay in. And yeah. I, and I really, you know, we we talk about this a lot the the unglamorous logistical sinews of war and how important all that is. Um, you know, the Soviets are a hand to mouth operation, especially in 1942 while Stalingrad is going on. Yeah. Uh, so to get this injection of vehicles, of food, of all the kind of non-glamorous stuff that you need is, is really important for them in order to keep people in the field fighting. It, it, it is absolutely incredible. I mean, the scale, of the, the scale of the effort, um, eight, oh, 8 million uh, uh, tons go across the Pacific, eight, uh, uh, nearly 4 million up, up on the northern route, and then another 4 million... Uh, on the southern route round the Cape. I mean, just the, it's 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 staggering, isn't it? It's and, and uh, you know we think of global shipping now. The thing that the thing that makes the world go round. Global shipping is saving the world at this point. It's it's ex- absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, it's the, the world's highways. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. What seventy seventy five percent of the planet at least is is uh, water is ocean. Yeah. So you know, and those sea lanes we think of them as secure now, but in World War II, of course, they're under stress and pressure. 
Yeah. So the, so there's that element too, whether you can get it to where it needs to go, much less than, you know, feed your own American forces wherever they may be. So that's part of the tension in 1942, especially for those who are serving in the Pacific. And feel, you know, especially what happened in the Philippines that year, you know, feel as though they haven't been properly supported. And yet all this stuff is going to the Soviet Union. It's very hard from Douglas MacArthur on down, uh, the folks in the Philippines and then SWAPA to to really kind of come to terms with that. Yeah. And you can kind of understand why. I mean, it's, <laughs> they're, they're arguing, you know, our own guys should be our priority. Uh, In the bigger picture from Washington, D.C., Roosevelt is thinking, well, if the Soviet Union goes down when we're all kind of screwed. So they felt it was a crisis. I mean, this is this is a way of doing Germany first without having to send anybody as well, isn't it? Uh, Yeah. Simple as that, isn't it? You're 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 like you say, you're 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 getting the Russians to do the actual fighting. So so I mean, to those who don't to those who don't know, how is Lend-Lease? structured how is it funded and uh, you know where's the money coming from and where's okay. the money uh, where's so the basically money going if your neighbor's house is on fire yeah. <laughs> well, the fire and hose. i've got a hose pipe <laughs> what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna lend him my hose pipe so he can yeah. put put out the fire and I, I love that analogy because what he doesn't tell you is that <laughs> Most of those hoses are destroyed, and you're not getting yeah. them back. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, want yeah. them back, and, and you haven't made any of the hoses. A lot of the hoses yet, either. right? So you got to. <laughs> so, so for those who don't know, this is this is how Roosevelt explained it in a cozy fireside chat. Um, how it was going to happen, um, you know, and, and and Roosevelt, for his patrician ways was very good at speaking the language that the ordinary American citizen could understand. <laughs> and giving people and that you know lend-lease was slightly complicated i mean a, a, a better way of explaining lend-lease is we'll produce lots of stuff we'll give it to you and we're not really expecting to ever have it back again yeah. exactly yeah, yeah that's right it's and as it- simple as that but equally lend-lease cuts both ways i mean for example uh, i think i've said this before but but 31 percent of all supplies in the european the- theater of operations the eto that was used by the americans was provided by the british now yeah. they weren't getting paid back for it either you know, so you know, every time you know, if 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 the Eighth Air Force, for example, needs an airfield, it's not America that's paying for it. It's it's the British who are constructing it, building it, and and then going here you go, and yeah. and you know, and so on and so yeah, forth. So right. it, it it's not an entirely one way ticket, and, and there's certain things that 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 it is one way ticket compared to the Soviet Union. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. we're not getting any Soviet stuff, but 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 in terms of kind of Britain and America and and Canada, well, there's is Australia. Yeah. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, got yeah, about absolutely. a million Americans who serve in Australia, um, or you know, pass through at some point during the war. Right. Well, for a good chunk of the war, um, the bulk of their food supply is local, um, and the reason right. for that is because shipping is at such a premium that we can't mm-hmm. earmark shipping in '42 and '43 to send a lot of our own food there. So we're having to eat the, the Australian food, a lot of mutton, um, and then is predictably. Um, the, the Americans start complaining and moaning and, you know, oh, this isn't it. We don't want to eat this crap. And, you know, so it creates a stressor that then causes by mid 43, the, the sort of larger powers that be start to earmark shipping for more American food to go there. Um, That's hilarious. You know, they so don't like mutton. They don't like mutton and, and uh, some, some of the other food that they were getting. Bully beef, too, was, was another thing. But uh you know, but but yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a really good point because wherever the Americans are operating locally, at least with with their closer allies, the Western allies, it is more of a two way street. 
The yeah. Soviet Union, though, it's down the vortex. Um, yeah. And this is something that kind of wouldn't have been unimaginable just a few years before, uh, because the Congress would not have been terribly friendly toward much of anything that had to do with the Soviet Union. No. And who, so who brokers the, 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 the Lend-Lease Agreement with the Soviet Union? Well, it's Harry Hopkins is really the key figure initially. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and worth I, explaining I think, a little bit about him, don't you think? Yeah. Harry Hopkins is, uh, I think, arguably the most important person in the Roosevelt administration during the New Deal era. And the, and the evidence of that is that um, Roosevelt earmarks him to head up the Works Progress Administration. Uh, which is really the great hope of the second New Deal in 1935. Uh, WPA employed 11.5 million Americans in the course of the Depression. Uh, And so it's Hopkins who oversees that. And by World War II then, obviously, he's a very intimate, trusted advisor, even lived at the White House at times. Yeah, Yeah, he's an extraordinary guy, isn't he? Because he's he's completely – his background is totally different to Roosevelt. You know, I think he's he's from the Midwest. Is he from from Minnesota? Iowa. Iowa. He's from Iowa. Iowa. Yeah. And and – you know, he's a thin kind of sort of sickly person. He's he gets stomach cancer, I think, in in, yeah. in 1939, and has all these operations. He's sort of packed off to the Mayo Clinic, and that's why that's the Minnesota bit. So he's packed off to the to Mayo Clinic, and you know, half his gut is removed, and and you know, and everyone thinks he's going to die, and. Roosevelt's really gutted about it, but he makes an amazing recovery, and 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 he's he's always sickly. He always looks kind of ill, and oh, it looks and terrible. It looks terrible the whole time. It looks like he's about to drop dead, but but he he doesn't. And for someone who is of a slightly kind of uh, uh, weak constitution, Roosevelt certainly puts him through the mill because because if he needs anyone to go anywhere, first port of call is 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 to Hopkins. And just before, uh, I think it's in May, nineteen forty. He's, you know, he's feeling a bit peaky. He's feeling a bit under the weather, and so, um, and so, Roosevelt says, "Look, come, come and stop all this traveling around. Just come and come and be nursed by us over here in the White House. Come and come and hang out." And so he takes up a room and basically doesn't leave for four years. I mean, you know, he's got his own wardrobe with his own suits in, and you know, all the rest of it. And he becomes incredibly trusted survivor, um, advisor, isn't he? But but he's a brilliant diplomat, isn't he? He's a natural charmer. He gets on with absolutely everybody. Churchill loves him when he first meets him. I think in, in January 1941, I think is the first yeah. time Hopkins mm-hmm. comes over, if I remember rightly. And um, and and you know he sort of wined and dined and all the rest of it in in London. But there is a genuine affection for for Hopkins from the Brits. They all just think he's a really terrific guy. And by all accounts, he absolutely is a terrific guy. You know, he's 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 funny. He he's clever. He's charming. Um, you know, he 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 never seems to take life too seriously. And maybe that's because you know he diced with death and came out the other side. You know, and he's a bit kind of carpe diem. I don't know. But he's the first person that goes over to Moscow, isn't he? He is, yeah, and he and he quickly consummates a, a really good relationship with Stalin, just as he had with Churchill. Mm. Stalin, the relationship with him is a little more natural in a way because uh, you know Hopkins is a leftist. He is a committed, uh, really almost socialist leftist, which is why I've always thought it was kind of remarkable he got on got on so well with Churchill. Yeah, right. <laughs> it showed <laughs> the flexibility of his personality um, to some. Uh, you know, Hopkins is seen as something of a villain in in some ways of being too accommodating to the Soviet Union, too uh, uh, giving them too much and, yep. and caving into their demands and all that. And, and an example I would give you is I don't know, you probably read Sean McMeekin's work, Stalin's War, um, which is just a mind blowing book um, all about 
you know, the, the war from the perspective of the Soviet Union and it, rather than- Do you know what? I actually, I'm ashamed book. to say I haven't. No, I haven't read that. I would I highly recommend that, that book to you guys. Who's it uh, by? Uh, Sean McMeekin. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'm a bias as he, he's a friend of mine, but uh, he uh, he teaches at Bard College in, uh, in uh, New York State. Yeah. And the book is kind of a magnum opus. You're going to get- incredible amounts of stats on Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union and all that. But really, Sean makes the, the I think, the really very salient point that uh, the Soviet Union was a slave empire every bit as much as Nazi Germany, of course. Um, yeah. It was just, of course, more remote, and they were on our side eventually. And and uh, so, uh, you know, he sees Hopkins as overly solicitous to the Soviet Union when you didn't necessarily have to be, that you could have still helped them without yeah. caving into many of their demands. Now, that's, of course, debatable. Uh, Hopkins is the guy who facilitates a lot of that. Um, yeah. There are some on the right in this country who almost see him as a spy, and I, I really don't necessarily agree with that. I think Hopkins was a very patriotic guy. Um, but I think he, when he looked at the war, uh, I think he saw the Soviet Union at the center of it uh, in terms of trying to win this war, that uh, that the Soviets would have to do the, the core fighting. Yeah, And I think he was willing to do anything to facilitate that. Yeah. Yeah, well, and uh, an argument that rages now, you know, the likes of Phillips Post and O'Brien say, well, the 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 material war is one elsewhere, but the in terms of in terms of buying the Allies' time on land, the Soviet certainly the so- Soviet Union are, are are doing exactly that, aren't they? Uh, and so right. so so Hopkins Hopkins goes to see. I mean, I mean, is it, is it, I mean, maybe he and Roosevelt are simpatico because they're both ill. I mean, there's because they're mm-hmm. both men who are really sick. That there's a there's a there's an element that that that's how they understand one another, perhaps. Um, and and it, when he goes to the Soviet Union, what's his offer? What's the initial offer when he? Because obviously, you know, Churchill's making a recommendation to the devil himself and all that sort of that sort of <laughs> rhetoric. What's what's the actual? What's the offer well, the, when he goes? The to offer school? is tell us what you need, and we'll get anything we can to you. I mean, really, it's it's that simple. Um, and so, really, that's going to start with vehicles and food, which is yeah. what we can give them. I mean, the, the factories have been retooled by the time the the U.S. is in the war. Many of them, yeah. Um, and you just have to build a lot of the the unglamorous trucks and 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 jeeps. Um, we've got plenty of food. Yeah. Uh, so the Soviets I mean, what are, are the geniuses, though? What what are the genius factors of, of so many? Is it, you know, if you're looking at a Jimmy, which is a General Motors six wheel truck, you're looking at the the Dodge that I used to have, the WC fifty two. You know, all that series of Dodges, for example. There's the WC fifty one. There's the fifty two. There's the command car. There's the ambulance. They're all basically the same. Yeah. And even with the Jimmy, there's there's crossover on parts. It's it's just so sensible. It's so completely obvious. It's 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 such a a brilliant way of of reducing your overheads, you know, unit cost, all that kind of stuff, um, and speeding up production. And yet they're the only country really that do it. Right. I mean, in a way, I wonder if it's because the U.S. had the luxury of doing it with a very yeah. secure kind of industrial yes. base. Of course, um, and, and, and started earlier than everyone else on automobiles. You know, so they're yeah, they're right. they're, they're, t- they're just that. ten years ahead in a very short time span. Yeah, and you, you had that kind of civilian economic muscle memory, I guess, in that sense of producing vehicles. It's the most automated society on earth. On the by by before. miles, actually, yeah. by miles. <laughs> so to speak. So, exactly. so so in 1939, there are there are 
summer of 1949, there are three people in the U.S. for every motorized vehicle. The next best is France with eight. The next best after that is um, is Britain with 14. Germany is way down. It's like 47. Like 47, yeah. 47. I mean, it, so Italy's 106. Soviet Union is even worse. Oh, several hundred, isn't there something? I mean, it, yeah. it's just. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other thing is the food. Uh, the Soviets get a taste for spam. And I think that's the sort of the funny part of this is uh, <laughs> most American soldiers by the end of the war, the majority had come to kind of hate spam as this <laughs> mystery meat. And of course, yeah. you know, nowadays we'd say, boy, that's packed with sodium and it still exists. Yeah. I mean, you can buy yeah. spam at any grocery store here mm. um, and people like it. Make no mistake. But a lot of soldiers got very sick of it. The Soviets uh, apparently never lost their appetite for it. That's um, amazing. And it really is. And so that's, you know, just imagine if you're a Red Army soldier somewhere. I mean, maybe that's sustaining you even as early as 1942. Yeah. I mean, that's that's quite a shot in the arm in a sense. And the, the Soviets, of course, then are talking, and, and I think to this day, the Russians, about how they're doing most of the fighting and dying. And that's true. But, of course, you, we might also rejoin with what choice do they have? You know, I yeah. mean, <laughs> they've been invaded. Um, so, yes, of course they have. But um, I, I, yeah. I think one of the really interesting things about the, about the early parts of Lendis, and in a way, early Lendis is a kind of, in a way, the most important moment, um, because if you if you're transporting two thousand eight hundred factories from the western part of the Soviet Union to the eastern part of the Soviet Union, you know, four hundred miles further east than yeah. Moscow. That's, that's a hell of an undertaking. That's when your trousers are really down. Around that's when your trousers are down, and 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 it's a, it's an astonishing feat that that Stalin and his and his and his guys managed to kind of pull off, and and that involves everyone who's in, you know who's a part of it, whether you're a factory worker or whatever. I mean, whole factory worker families are just transported to the Urals. You know, lots talking about it. It's an incredible achievement, but that that's where the problem lies in. That's why they're so scared. In the you know, so the winter has the Germans have overstretched themselves in Barbarossa. We, we've 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 talked about that a lot. Over the winter, there is this kind of you know, Red Army is sort of picking itself up. It's just starting to kind of sort of work itself. It's just starting to recover from the purges. It just sort of knows sort of what it needs to do. But you've got the big summer offensive coming, Operation Blue. And this is the big thing that the Soviet Union, this is the crisis point for the Soviet Union in a way. Now, actually, I think they've got less to worry about than, than perhaps it first seems. But 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 be that as it may, if you're Stalin and you're Stavka, you know, it looks like you've got a massive problem on your hand. The fact that Chukov is driving a Jeep on the 11th of September 1943, 42 rather, tells you that Lend-Lease is working and kicking in. It's, a, it's, it's the bridge between the moment where the Soviet Union is really starting to kind of up its game again industrially, having made this big change, this big leap. That, the, the, the industrial gap is inevitably is in the summer of 1941 to the summer of 1942, that 12-month period. Thereafter, it's all getting back on track again. So it's bridging that gap that's most important. And it is Lend-Lease, whether it, and, and, you know, let's, let's also not, not forget what the British are doing in terms of sending over Valentines and Matildas and all the rest of it. Uh, um, that's the crucial moment. And you can tell by the fact that Chukov's driving his Jeep in September 1942, that shows you that it's working. Absolutely. And to think of it, the other mind-blowing thing, it's only been happening uh, for nine months, the Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union. It begins in November 1941. That's not a lot of time. 
and think of everything else that's been happening in that same time too. Uh, obviously, events in the Philippines, uh, all the shipping problems, the Battle of the Atlantic, which is you could argue in its worst phase uh, during portions of 1942. Uh, certainly from an American perspective of losing so many ships yep. along the coast. Second happy the, time and all that. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet you're still able to get enough equipment to the Soviet Union in that time span that someone like Chuikov is affected by it. Uh, and certainly his troops are too. Um, you know, and even some level of weaponry too. I mean, Thompson submachine guns are going to come into play. Um, uh, foot gear, you know, too. I mean, things like that you're going to have in play too within a pretty reasonable amount of time. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll see you in a moment. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. I mean, it's pretty much everything everything except heavy bombers, isn't it, essentially? In, in, in yeah, because it's fighters too. And, and rolling stock and mm -hmm. locomotives, which is, of course... Really, they're sending those over as well, are they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think something are at least 1,500 to 1,800. Uh, wow, I had no idea about that. Which I mean, locomotives. I don't know how they did that, but yeah, locomotives wow. and, and well, train cars, you know. How well, do you do that? That's a good question. I wish I knew. I, I think that's just a remarkable feat to, to be able to ship that stuff. I mean, a locomotive is not a small thing. I mean, no, well, I know. But, but, but it's absolutely critical to the way, you know, we, we talk about Russia moving its industrial base. It's, still, it's then got to get the stuff to the front. And, you know, the base and the size of the Soviet Union means that but, but, but also the rail Soviet is how you do it. And Hang on a minute. American I mean, but those railways are different railway loading gauge. No, they're American gauge. It's the... It's the it, American engineers in the 20s and 30s were hired by 
by the Soviet Union to put their rail. To, to uh, so that's why it's a larger gauge. And they're it's, industrial yeah. base too. It's, and they're industrial what? base, yeah, because that's the other. That's the remarkable thing is that is that you know for all the, the 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 I mean it's the people running the Soviet Union are playing a very long game, are very cynical people, and they'll get American industrialists in to teach them how to do industry and mass produce in order to defeat capitalism. It's the most extraordinary. Uh, 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 wow. Uh, <laughs> because that's, thing that that's sort do. of what Stalin wants out of the war. And yeah. and the other thing, too, a lot of those folks who had come to the Soviet Union were no longer in play by the time the war broke out because yeah. they had been caught up in the purges, because they had been sent to camps in Siberia. Yeah. Um, there were there were thousands and thousands of Americans who in the during the Depression uh, yes. sort of idealists who went to the Soviet Union voluntarily because they thought that's the workers paradise. Capitalism yeah. has failed here. The Soviets were enticing yeah. them. And then in many cases, uh, they just sort of confiscate their passports. They say, oh, well, and they end up in a gulag citizen. Yeah, exactly. Working, especially like in uh, in gold fields. Uh, to try and maximize the gold reserves for the the Moscow government. And I mean, so you've had that happen by then too. Of course, the average American by 1941 and 42 doesn't really know that. I mean, how many would have really known somebody who left? But in certain Mm. circles, this was a big deal because they wondered whatever happened to our family member. Where are they? Yeah. I mean, remember, Jim, the the, the people who build the Moscow underground, the people from Vickers, uh, are put on trial uh, for, for espionage after they finished the after finished the tube. That's the uh, you know there's that instant where Ian Fleming is reporting on that, which t- 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 you know there's that little thing where he cuts the phone line so he gets an exclusive. But but the but the fact is is the 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 the, the Soviet railway is compatible with the American railway, so you're able to ship locomotives. I mean it's absolutely amazing, isn't it? And the, and yes. in bulk as well. I mean that's it's not it's not. Half a dozen, or or, or, or I know. I'm just sort of thinking the thought of of, of of of. I'm just thinking about you know the derricks that are needed to kind of hoist a locomotive onto a ship. I mean, that's it's just you know we're you know we're talking about the yeah. 1940s. I mean, you know, it's not. I know, and then to ship it somehow uh, wherever, and then to yeah. get it to where it needs to go. Yeah, to get all like yeah. like you said, Al, to get all that freight you know towards the front. Yeah. Uh, and, and so of course, Vlad, the trucking comes into play there too. I think somewhat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So and Vladivostok teaching them to drive it. Yeah, but Vladivostok is incredibly important in this as a as a heavy as a heavy port, a Pacific port. And like you say, that there's an a, an effort to not then antagonize or by the Japanese to not then um, uh, antagonize the Americans, which I find which I find amazing, really. That that. They just well, we can't have anything to do with that because mm-hmm. they don't want no, to take us. They're of getting the Soviets into the war yeah. against <laughs> them. They, they got enough to deal with in China and against the yeah. Western allies. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, the other thing that's mind blowing to think about now about a third. I think something over about a third or so of the supplies, lend lease supplies, go into the Soviet Union, go through Iran. Right. Okay, so you know, jointly occupied initially by the Soviets and the British, then the Americans. Now you could argue that unleashes a series of events that ultimately lead to where we are today with yeah. Iran. Yeah. I mean, because this is a Western presence in the country resented by some, then you have uh, sort of Soviet, uh, shall we say sort of underhanded uh, actions immediately after world war two, because all the powers had pledged to leave within a few months. Yeah. The Soviets didn't because yeah. they have their designs on Iranian oil. They're trying to work this little deal. So the Americans get and get more interested in Iran. 
and are always worried about Soviet inroads there. And the Americans get very, very particular about what kind of government they want in Iran as U.S. dependence on foreign oil begins to, to grow in the post-war period. Yeah. Presto, we have the Shah. <laughs> and, then, and, 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 you know, obviously, you know, the rest. I mean, it's so arguably that's kind of a legacy of Lend-Lease to the Soviet Union too, at least <laughs> that's on That's amazing, isn't it? And this is why how Second World War is still important. Earlier on, Jimmy, of course, the, the, the hose, Robert Taft replied, you know, it's like lending chewing gum. You certainly don't want the, the, the same gum back. Um, <laughs> Although Mark Clark shared his gum, didn't he, with one of the guys who was getting a bit fraught and the, and the yeah. submarine antics and the antics in, yeah. um, in North Africa. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, thanks very much. And uh, Corporal Henderson and Private Ryan, he, he shared it with <laughs> well, Melch, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 but, yeah but, indeed. But is there? Is I mean, you know, the Cold War comes, Soviet Union is armed to the teeth, um, or at least transported to the teeth, because 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 you know they're not going to get any more tanks off anyone with American gear. And I I I was given a um. A friend of mine gave me Soviet, Ar- you know, Re- Soviet Army in the 1960s identification manual thing, um, which I gave to my father. And oh yeah, it's all pretty familiar. All of this stuff from his days, his days in the <laughs> army in the 60s. Oh yes, that one I remember that. Yes, the and and the thing is, you leave through that thing, and it's all the trucks. I mean, well, not all of the trucks, but an awful lot of it is still lend lease jeeps, trucks, six pounders, um, all that, all that sort of stuff. So you don't get your chewing you don't get your chewing gum back, do you? I mean, partly because of the partly because of the Cold War, and partly because that is that is the deal. That 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 strike. I mean, you know, that, I mean, again, another another unforeseen consequences of this is that the Cold War is be has been put on its you know hind legs by lend lease. That the the, the the Soviet Union's aggressive posture in Europe, as seen by the by the Western powers, is a by another byproduct of lend lease, isn't it? It is because it's it's handed them the sinews of war that they didn't necessarily have before, and yeah. and you know what? If we're thinking about it just in this broader pattern, mm. um, the Russian slash Soviet logistical problem slash Russian. Think about their logistics in World War One. Were they good? Yeah. Not really. Um, <laughs> were in World <laughs> War Two, they were in to a great extent because of so much Western support. Think about them now in the war against Ukraine. Uh, in which they lack that kind of support. So there are some patterns there, mm. and, and it's, it is supremely ironic that the, the, source, the logistical foundation, an automated foundation for what becomes a very powerful Red Army after World War II, is laid by Lend-Lease. Now, of course, the Soviets would never view it that way during the Cold right. War. Um, they, they, you know, that it became kind of verboten in a way to, to, to talk about the Western support and all that, that, you know, they had, and just as I think in the West, there was a bit of amnesia about how much fighting the Soviets really did and how yeah. much suffering there was yeah. per yeah. capita, which I don't think yeah. we even can wrap our minds around, you know, yeah. uh, to this day. It is interesting that the historiography has sort of got it, got in the way of t- telling either story you know because because you know i mean, where we've talked about tunisia on 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 the podcast you, someone always pops up and goes it's a sideshow the true blood was spilt at stalingrad and all sort of thing you think well yes and no you know um uh, it, it 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 you know if the if because you, t- you you touched on it earlier jim that the americans are 10 years ahead in terms of ma- mass production 
right? The second well, and just in just in the modernity of their vehicles as well. Well, yeah, and their production methods, because you know the, the Germans are operating this sort of mass artisan artisan workshops essentially to mass produce stuff, as are the as are the British. That the, the true Ford style mass production doesn't exist on the continent, that uh, except for the so uh, except it does for the Soviets. So so. But but the the advantage that Germany has uh, at the start of the war is that they've been thinking about fighting and psyching themselves up for it for the last ten years or so. Um, everyone else has been the, the Americans have been psyching themselves up to become an industrial economy in that gap and and meet the demands of a collapsed economy as a result of the Great Depression and the New Deal and all that sort of stuff. It's as if the Americans have been preparing themselves for an industrial war, and the Germans have been preparing themselves in a way for a tactical war. That you know, a quick a quick knockout thing, and and you know that that in the end the former pays off. That for all for all Germany's sort of uh, enthusiasm for getting the thing started, they haven't they haven't prepared themselves for how it'll pan out. Whereas America has unconsciously prepared itself for how the war will pan out in terms. Well, of if, you, if you, well, what we know is is that the um the Russians in the war produced eighty four thousand tanks, and what we know is that the, the Americans produced similar. No, 84,000, sorry, 84,000 T-34s, I should say. So over 100,000 tanks in the war. And the Americans weren't far behind with kind of 85,000 tanks and whole, 85,000, something like that. I reckon if you tot up, Panzer, Panzer 1s and Panzer 2 don't count because they're only kind of useful in the very early days and then there's not very many of them. But if you add up Panzer Mark 3s, Panzer Mark 4s, Panthers, and both types of Tiger tank, you get 22,500. That's it for... All of North Africa, all of Europe, all of the Soviet Union, and you think of the rates of attrition. And we were talking about this the other this morning, weren't we? Al, when we were doing uh, talking about Stalingrad, you, you know, you're starting Case Blue in the summer of in, in late June, um, Operation Blue in 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 late June 1942, with less than you had for Barbarossa, and you're expecting to go further, and you're further from your your core base, you're further from the Ruhr. You're three thousand kilometers from the Ruhr, you know. So, how are you going to do it? And and it's and it's that moment comes, doesn't it? That transition of that transitional moment comes at Stalingrad with the encirclement from from Uranus, when when suddenly material might we've learnt the lessons know how. Half decent commanders getting to the top of the tree after all the purges, after all the other sort of, you know, not so good ones have kind of fallen by the wayside. That's all coming together in that moment. And it's overwhelming. And, and how can Germany possibly compete when it can only produce 22,500 tanks? But this is also why Germany first is so, is so important, because because the, the Americans know that they don't want the Germans to get the European economy, the, the larger European economy, working properly and singing Singing properly and running properly, and make, and uh, and thus making it easier for them to fight the war. You know, if they can only get, if they can get French factories online and Czech factories online properly, because after one of the things, then the French, the French economy then does completely gurgle down a plug hole and, ne- and and does not recover from the from having been invaded and occupied. But but the the fear is if they can get you know because the European economy is is much larger than the German economy. The fear is if they can get that all working, get that running, they'll be too, they'll be again too hard to beat. So so that's why you need to that's why you need to do to do Germany first. But yeah, you're right. The Germans the Germans basically regarding the whole thing as one enormous looting exercise. But I mean, you know, you sort of think about France in 1940. You know, France is is the most 
is a highly industrialized first world nation with huge amounts of factories and and industrial output and all the rest of it. And what the Germans do is they think, great, we've got France now. It can it can make stuff for us, but we're all going. But we're going to nick all the things that make their industry efficient. You know, the coal, the oil, the food reserves, the cars, the vehicles, all the rest of it that enable and the workers to go to work, and all the rest, <laughs> and all the workers. And and you know, oh my God, you know what a surprise! The factories don't work anymore. They or they're not very productive. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what do you expect? Yeah. And, well, and, and there's nearly uh, but, two but, million but, prisoners of war out of the work. Right. Out of the workplace as well, you know, blah blah blah. They have to do that because they haven't got enough themselves. But but by by taking it from the French, you're then reducing the French France's ability to 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 work industrially on your behalf. So it's just yeah. it's crazy. Uh, anyway, mean, on the on the side to this, I just want to I just want to run a small union jack up a flagpole and say, you know, there's an awful lot of British lendies going to the Soviets as well. You know, it's uh, the American effort is formidable, but the British, are, you know, supply over five thousand tanks. Including Canadian tanks, they four and a half thousand hurricanes. Exactly, exactly. You know, uh, uh, fifteen million pairs of boots. <laughs> I mean, after all, we don't want them. <laughs> no, we, no, last thing we want. No. <laughs> well, you know, and, and you know, dare I say, it, there's some certain parallels going on at the moment. I mean, <laughs> we can, we can, we certainly haven't got enough tanks to spare, but. Handful of, a, a handful are going off. A squadron's yeah, going I off, mean, isn't it? it Whoopie do! They've got off, they've got fourteen of our main battle tanks. Yeah, no, that's I like mean, half our tank force, isn't it? I mean, well, it's well, it's a te- it's a tenth of what we say is working, but I mean, obviously that the, the legit the logistic problem of handing them, you know, do you, I mean, do you strip them of the posh posh you know targeting, or do you leave the because after all, the, the last thing I mean, what what which Abrams America is going to send is a big question, isn't it? Because if it's got advanced armor on it and, and and proper targeting kit and all that sort of thing, and don't want uh, that don't falling know. in the hands of the Russians, no. do you? Thank you, John, for for shedding for for shedding light on this and and for helping us kick the subject around. Because because I mean, actually, we haven't we didn't really get into uh, the material side of things particularly, did we, Jim, in our Stalingrad week? Because there was so much there was so much action to cram into the four days. No, I, th- I think it's very good to end the Stalingrad week with this because it it. it- Provide some sort of wider context, yeah, I think, doesn't it? Well, thanks everyone for listening um, uh, to We Have Ways USA. We will we will see you again very soon. As ever, John, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, uh, see you soon. Bye bye. Cheerio. See ya.